Two banks collapsed recently, and President Biden guaranteed that the depositors would receive all their money back at no cost to the taxpayers. But is that really true? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. Bank panics have been a common problem in American history. And, you know, even as recently as 2008, there was panics in financial institutions that basically caused what was called later the Great Recession, where we basically have eight years where we have almost no economic growth. And then recently, Silicon Valley Bank went bankrupt and went into receivership. And immediately people come out and say, this needs to be bailed out immediately. The Republicans come out and say, we will not spend any taxpayer money to bail out these people. Secretary of Treasury Yellen comes out and says that we won't bail out the bank. And then President Biden the next day announces that they're going to bail out the bank, but at no cost to the taxpayer. Before we start discussing the mixed and conflicting messages, you know, why do banks have bank runs? You could go into a lot of detail on this because, I mean, the history of banking is I mean, there's a lot of complexity to it. But in the end, if you think about it in a simple level over the history of banks, at some point you brought something of value into the bank and the bank gave you back a bank note for what you had given them. And so, you know, whether you brought gold or you brought anything into the bank for them to store it, the bank had vaults, the bank had a secure place. You brought it in, they gave you a bank note and that bank note was for the value of what you had in there. And there was something called fractional reserve banking that was developed. And fractional reserve banking basically said bankers noticed that people put stuff in the bank and they almost everyone didn't come back at the same time to get what they had put into the bank. In fact, most of the stuff just stayed in the bank most of the time. And so they came up with fractional reserve. And what it means, I deposit $1,000 worth of gold into the bank. They give me, you know, they record that I have this on, on hand. And then because they want to make more money off of this, they decide, well, he's not going to come and ask for all thousand, you know, all the $1,000 at once. So they loan out $900 worth of that gold to other people. And they, give, and they only keep $100 worth of gold from my original deposit in the bank. And that works fine as long as everyone doesn't come back to the bank and say, I'd like my money. I'd, I come back to the bank and go, I'd like all $1,000 worth of my gold back. The reason why there are runs is because the bank doesn't have all of the money in the bank that it's made loans out for. And so there can be points where people come back, they ask for their money, and the bank doesn't have the money. It's tied up in either different loans, it's tied up in other funds, and the bank cannot supply that money. And that's basically called fractional reserve banking, and it's a cornerstone of modern banking. Right. Before, when people were bringing their money into a bank, the bank wasn't paying them interest. They were paying the bank to store the money because it was basically somebody buys a nice vault, an expensive one that's hard to break into, and everybody wants to store their gold there so that somebody can't steal it, and they pay them to store it there. And then all of a sudden the bank went, wait a second, if we loan this out, then we can actually get money back in, you know, in terms of interest, and then we can pay the people who put the money in. The problem is if you're going to loan it out, you can't loan all of it out or then you, nobody can withdraw money. And so if you have 10 people and they all bring in $1,000, then you can loan out you know, 9,000 of it. And if any one of them comes in on a given day, they can get their $1,000 back. But when a bank run is if they're starting to go, wait a second, this bank isn't good for it. And then all of a sudden you get all 10 coming back at the same time. And that's a bank run. That's when people are going, we need to get our money out because they won't be able to pay. And the problem is the bank can collapse before they can make good on all that money that they, that they loaned. 
And so they can't go back to those people that they gave a 30-year mortgage to and say, you need to pay today. And so they can't pay the money back. So then they get in this case where, where they kind of have the assets, but they don't really have them because they're in physical things and not in the money that the people went back. Or they made bad investments and they don't have that much money anymore. Which is exactly what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. So Silicon Valley Bank, what it did was it went out there and it said, well, we mostly loaned to venture capitalists. And so what happened with COVID and the, the rush of money, because so much stuff went online, all these people got lots of money that were depositing it in the bank. But guess what? They didn't want loans because they had all this money. So they didn't have a need for money. So the usual loan group of people disappeared. And so what they decided to do instead was went, the safest investment is bonds. So we're going to put it all in bonds. Now, if you ever invest anything and somebody says, we're going to put it all in, you have a problem. All by in, definition, all in X, right? <laughs> all, all in, in one thing. Because if you're not diversified, but they're going, oh, bonds have been flat for a long time, ever since the Great Recession. But then guess what happens? All of a sudden, inflation hits. So inflation means that the value of a bond, the present-day value of a bond, decreases because that bond is paying a lower interest rate than is being paid by bonds Do now. Can you explain what, what bonds are? So a bond is basically like a, a you borrow money now with a promise to pay with a certain amount of interest over the intervening years before before you mature it and before you turn it in. On say you're going to give a hundred or nine hundred dollars, and in five years it's going to pay back a thousand dollars. So that's a couple percent interest a year, roughly. If instead Somebody says, well, now you give me $700, in in five years I'll pay you back 1000 Nobody's going to buy that bond for 900 anymore because its present value is now 700 And they're only going to pay 700 And that's what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. They put everything into bonds. Then the government started to raise the interest rates because they say we're going to, to slow down the economy. And because they raised the interest rates, all of a sudden these investments that were good for the last 15 years, 20 years, all of a sudden they look really, really bad. Because all of a sudden the present value of those bonds is minuscule compared to what they paid for them. So they then some people came in and said, we want money. And so they sell them. And then all of a sudden people are going, wait a second, they took this huge loss. They can't sustain us. They can't pay us back. And that's what the bank run was. And it was really tied directly to the government saying we can manipulate the economy through interest rates. In Silicon Bank wasn't prepared. Silicon Valley Bank wasn't prepared for the government to manipulate the economy that way. So it's these government things. So much of this is government forces playing games with things instead of having real weights and measures, in which case it wouldn't have happened. I mean, because one thing is when you're putting your money in a bank, you know, you're not thinking of it as investing the money. You're thinking of storing it there safely. And if, you know, you don't have any insight into you just have to trust that the bank is going to have the money when you want it. And you don't even think about what if their investments go bad and they don't have the money. Is, I mean, because people understand in the stock market, you put money in the stock market, you probably will make money, but you also very well might not. But we just don't think about banks that way. But this is... And that's an error in a sense, because 
the FDIC, which is the insurance company, that the federal government requires banks to insure deposits up to 250000 The reason that they put a limit on that and that it wasn't for every single account was to do exactly the opposite. If the average depositor has $50 in there, he's not going to go and check the, the stability of the bank. If somebody has a business that has $10 million in there, the government's saying, you now bear the risk, which means the people that are supposed to be able to understand these things are supposed to check, right? Because all of a sudden, all these companies, so you have Silicon Valley Bank, where you have all these venture capitalists, which are you know, multi, multi, multi-millionaires that have a lot of money in there. I think more than half the accounts had more than 250000 but none of them took the responsibility to say, is this bank managing risk properly? Because the answer was they weren't. I mean, because I want to go back to what you said earlier, and I want to walk, because you mentioned that Silicon Valley Bank was not thinking that the government was going to be manipulating the, the currency in this way. Why? Because for 10 years it hadn't manipulated the currency that way. Right. But I mean, in other words, but what I'm saying is, is there's this part of it where would anybody who was a, let's say, I mean, you major in finance, this is what you do. You're going. To, I mean, if you're the head of a bank, finance isn't something that you study as a hobby. <laughs> it shouldn't be, at least, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, or if you could say I study in finance as a hobby, and I'm not surprised that the government does things to manipulate the currency. I'm not surprised that the government looks and goes that oh, at any given point, if something goes on, we might change the interest rate because that's that's what the Fed does. But, the, but, I mean, every investment is risk versus reward. No, I understand, but every. I'm just saying there's this part of it where – but, I mean, but again, he there were multiple things that he pointed out. One, they put 93% of their funds they put into bonds. So there's – first of all, there was no diversification. And second, what they p- chose to put them all in was something that is at the mercy of the Fed. Well, it's at the mercy of the Fed. But, I mean, if you did it in the stock market, it could crash the same way. I mean, I'm saying there's, there's two different things. Just, I'm saying there's two di- I'm not saying that, that you could have avoided it by putting in everything in something else. I'm just saying these aren't things that would be hard for them to understand. Yeah, they should have put some in, like, uh, cryptocurrencies. <laughs> well, we'll get there in a minute, Under Joshua. their mattress. <laughs> that, see, well. that would be a good idea. Under their mattress. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Keep it safe. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're back to the idea that you don't that everybody has to pay to deposit money, which people don't want to do. Right. But the real issue comes down to, like you said, that somebody who has maybe these guys are all 30 years old and they don't remember a time where the interest rates were in the teens, in the high teens. So they go, oh, this will never happen. Well, I certainly remember that. And anybody that looks studies finance should remember they that. They make these things called books that you don't have to have lived through <laughs> something, so you know things. <laughs> but even, but but the point is that the way the system's supposed to work is the CFOs for the companies are supposed to be reading those statements. Remember those banks? They put out these these quarterly reports right. that show where all their investments are. So these people that are complaining about losing money, they're not taking responsibility for what was supposed to be their responsibility. And it's really, and when you when you look at what's been said, I mean, Elizabeth Warren immediately came out and she said, "This was the failure of government oversight and government regulation." We need, in other words, she. I mean, her statement is, the government it needs to have the responsibility for managing every bank and making sure that every bank is making decisions that they should be making. 
which is a huge shift from, like you said before, if you had over 250, I mean, and let's be clear, if you have $250,000 in the bank, these are liquid, I mean, this, is, this isn't like I have a house and I have all these, that my total net value is $250,000. If you have $250,000 in the bank, you're going to be in the category that most people are going to call well off. You know what I mean? I mean, you're, you're going to be above the median. Well, most of these are companies, to be fair. Sure, but I'm just saying, but also companies are, so, I mean, you know what I mean? So, That's why I'm saying CFOs. <laughs> right. So you either and, you either have someone whose job is managing this or you're well enough off that. And it's even worse than that, right, in the case of this bank. Because this bank was the venture capitalist bank. Right. And the people that were banking there were banking there because their venture capitalist told them to bank there because that's where they banked. In other words, these are people that are like supposed to be the financial geniuses that are supposed to be telling other people how to do finances. So these aren't people that anybody should have any sympathy for whatsoever because they had the responsibility to look at those bank books and go, we're not keeping our money here not at a panic, but when they're doing their quarterly reports, they should have gone to the bank and gone, you know, I've got $100 million in here. What in the world are you doing? So, so you're telling me we've got, we've got more or less three sets of actors. We have the depositors at the bank who were not watching their money, not watching what was happening with their money. They were just handing it over a counter, walking away, and, oh, I've got, you know, I can look up on my phone. Here's how much is in my account. Right. And then you have and, – and, and that that was a dumb move given the amounts of money that, that were at right. stake and, and the kinds of people that, that aren't doing this investing. And then you have a bank that just flat out takes that money and makes – with uses poor judgment, uh, does not assess risk and diversification properly, and therefore makes bad investments that end up causing trouble. Right. And then you have the government, President Biden, who says – Oh, you all made a bunch of bad decisions. Not going to affect any of you. We'll we'll, well fix it. It's a little it. bit more complicated than that. I, in, I know it is. I'm trying to simplify <laughs> it. But in 2008, that's exactly what they said. The government said, what we're going to do is we're going to increase the regulation. But for now, you're a banker. You'll be whole. You're a depositor. You'll be whole. You're an investor that invested in that bank. You'll be whole. We're just going to pay everybody to be whole. And so when President Biden comes out and, you know, the, like the Republicans come and say, we're not going to bail out the banks. President Biden comes out and says, well, actually, the, the Treasury said we're going to bail it out. But President Biden didn't. Well, he he did actually. The treasury, what did the, the treasury said they are going to bail it out? Or did they, yeah, that they're going to bail out the banks. President Biden said we're going to bail out the depositors. So you have those three groups. You have the depositors, you have the bank, and you have the government. And the government says, we're going to bail out the depositors, and we're going to destroy the bank. We're going to take it into receivership. It was California that shut down the bank. And California then turned it over to the FDIC, which is a federal agency, to run the bank, to be in receivership. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. They're the ones who cover the first 250000 And that's the same with Signature Bank, which Signature Bank, it's all the same problem, only they were doing cryptocurrency instead of doing instead of doing bonds. But it's the same thing. They thought, oh, cryptocurrencies will go up. They've been going down for a year. And they even said we need to get rid of these, but they didn't fast enough. And then all of a sudden people went after Silicon Valley Bank went, they went, oh, no, this is going to collapse too. And so they, New York grabbed that and turned it over to the FDIC. But so what Biden said is, which is a lot better than what Bush did, what Biden said is, 
If you invest in this bank, tough. If you worked at the bank, in 45 days, you'll be out of job. But the depositors, we're going to make them whole. So he's saying we're not going to bail out the bank, which is better than what President Bush did, but we are going to bail out all the depositors. And they said we're not going to do it. It's going to be at zero cost to the taxpayer. Which is, which, you know, I don't know a lot about banks, but I do know that if they're promising that they're going to spend a massive amount of money at no cost to the common person, that... It sounds like a lot. Yeah, like their billionaire supporter, are they like getting voluntary contributions from their billionaire friends? I mean, there's okay, so not many options. Let's step back and say what's actually happened. How? So, so <laughs> what, what happened after 2008 is that there were these too big to fail, right? People have heard of too big to fail. And that's basically their strategic financial institutions that if any of those strategic financial institutions fail, the government will step in and give them enough money so that they won't fail. Because supposedly their failure would cause cause catastrophic economic collapse. And so that was originally $50 billion, that if you were over $50 billion, you had to pay into a new insurance fund that was created after 2008 that every bank over $250 billion had to pay into. Well, Silicon Valley Bank was at $30 billion at the time. They went up to $200 billion, but they didn't want to pay into that. So they got the law changed through lobbyists so that it would be above their capital, so that they didn't pay into this insurance company, into this insurance fund. Well, guess who's now going to bail them out? That insurance fund that they manipulated the government to not pay into, and that insurance fund will bail them out. But of course... There's not enough money in that insurance fund because this is the 16th largest bank in the country, which means that they will do what's called a special assessment, where they go around and make banks pay. So it's not going to be the taxpayers that pay because he's always very careful to say the taxpayers won't pay. Instead, all your bank prices will go up because the banks are going to pay because the money doesn't come from Nowhere, Nowhere, right? I mean, it has to be from someplace. They're not going to sell their yachts and their houses and their bank buildings to pay for this. They're going to they're going to charge their customers because what else are they supposed to do? Right, and so basically, anybody that banks will pay for this, but yet it's not through taxes, so the government doesn't get it. And and it is not through taxes, also meaning the president is just unilaterally doing this in Congress and sidestepping Congress. Well, he's not sidestepping Congress because the bill that was passed in two thousand eight allows all this. So he's doing what he's allowed to do to restrict a run on banks because there's reasons why that that banks don't want this to happen because it usually goes one to another, right? And so people look back at the Great Depression and the Great Depression, one of the causes, and I've heard it argued that it's the primary cause is, and it's, it's important to know this because we look at it and our first thought is, well, only the government can do this. Well, the reality, the government didn't get into this until the 30s or 40s. Before that, it never did this. This was, this was a Great Depression response to allow them to do this. Because before that, what would happen is if you're J.P. Morgan, right, one of the biggest banks in the country, if you're looking around and you're seeing bank runs, what you would do is – and he was known for this, J.P. Morgan was, going out and getting a bunch of other banks together to bail out that bank. So zero government involvement. Basically, the banks would go, if these banks run, 
we're going to have a run on us. That's not worth it. We'll pool money together. We'll bail them out. We'll buy them. We'll do something, right? And then the Jewish Bank in New York, they had a bank run, and they basically went, they're Jews. Anti-Semitism is at the heart of the Great Depression because that's why that bank wasn't bailed out, and then bank runs start, and that's where you get the bank run runs. And so it used to be done that people were just – that other bankers were the backstop. And they would do it out of self-preservation. They would do it. Right. We're not talking about that there was some – we're just wonderful people and we're altruistic. They're going, well, you need to kick in – I mean, J.P. Morgan would get all the bankers together and go, you need to kick in this much and you need to kick in this much. Otherwise, the economy is going to collapse. And so we look at it and say government has to do that when private industry used to do that. Private banking used to do that because they said we need to preserve our industry. And so it doesn't require the government involvement. The government has made it worse, not better. And one of the things that's happened is when you do this is, I mean, we just, we, and the reason I'm thinking of this is we just, tonight we recorded an episode on church discipline. And one of the things we talked about is when you don't allow consequences of actions to happen, people don't learn. People do not learn when you allow this to happen. And what's happened, like you said, it used to be that if you had more than $250,000, you had a recognition that you had obligation People had kind of forgotten that. Well, guess what? Now they've completely forgotten it. <laughs> you know, now they went, hey, if this happens, you know, the government will bail you out. They're going to set up an insurance. You know, this is going to be, this could very easily become normal practice. And so people don't go, when you don't manage your money, this is what happens. This is the cost of being a free, a free person who is able to invest their money where they want to invest their money and who has this who have this level of resources this is the cost of business and we've said no that's not going to be the cost of business we're going to underwrite the risk for this and as soon as they did too big to fail you knew this is what's going to happen next if you pay attention to government because this is what always happens well we'll we will protect the elderly with medicare well, then all of a sudden you expand that, so now you have you know Medicaid, and then you have Medicare with drugs, and Medicaid with drugs, and you keep expanding because that's what God warns us when we want an authoritarian government, when we want man to be ruling over us rather than God. This is what happens. And so we look at this and we see this, that every time they come in and say, we're going to help, right? I mean, remember Reagan's fav famous quote, the most frightening words in the English language is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And so they come in saying they're going to help, but they make the matter worse and worse. Because like you're saying, tying it to church discipline, I completely agree with that because the idea is nobody else goes, we now need to deal with this. Instead they go, oh, well, the government bailed us out. The government will bail us out next time. A good example of this is you look at bicycle helmets, right? What's the point of a bike, bicycle helmet? You're riding a bicycle, you fall off the bike, you hit your head, and you get brain damage. So once you have... <laughs> <laughs> That's the point of a bicycle helmet. You, I think you bought the wrong helmet. <laughs> Let me say that again. So you buy a bicycle helmet because the idea is you fall off the bike and you hit your head and you don't hurt yourself. So you would expect injuries, head injuries from bicycles to go down when you start to mandate bicycle helmets. The reality is they went up. So why do they go up? 
they go up because before when you were a child and you went off the bicycle and you hit your head, you went, that's really hurts. I'm not going to do something stupid like that again. But if instead you put a helmet so it doesn't really hurt, what does a child do? They do something more risky because it didn't hurt them until the point where now it mitigates the small things, but it doesn't mitigate the big things. And all of a sudden you have more children dying because of brain injuries off of bicycles than you did before there were bike helmets. Because if you don't teach people by letting them feel pain, they do more of the same with higher risk. So as soon as the government says, we're going to bail out everybody, guess what happens? All of a sudden, the banks go, we should have higher risk because then we have a potential to give higher returns to people so we can grow our bank faster. I mean, and let's, let's go back and tie that together. In the end, what you're looking at is this is why Scripture calls spanking the rod of correction. It's not just negative reinforcement. It's negative reinforcement and instruction. Whenever you go and you mandate something, what you do is you mandate something without understanding. You're just saying we're going to do this thing. Like, you're, And what you're saying is with the bike helmet is it's not bad to wear a bike helmet. No. What you're saying is, is that people who wore bike helmets, one of the reasons they wore them is because they learned that they should wear a bike helmet. And they understood why they were putting the bike helmet on. They understood the things that came with the bike helmet was understanding. And what you've done whenever you, all you do is you mandate the things is you remove understanding. And God did not make people to be mindless things that went through the world just doing what someone said. God said, I mean, through all throughout his word. I mean, you look at Psalm 119, which is about the law of God. Over and over, David says, thank you for teaching me these things. Thank you for showing me your statutes. Thank you for giving me an understanding of the... I mean, over and over, he's talking about how these things come with understanding. And what you're saying is, is we've, we've removed the connection between those two things. And so it causes people... It causes people who have accounts over $250,000 to not understand their responsibility with their own money. Because the government has said, it's not your responsibility. We'll do it. Right. And I remember, I remember this very clearly with Katrina, right, the, the hurricane that hit New Orleans, where President Bush comes and he lies to the American people on national television and says, this is our failure. The federal government did not do what it was supposed to do here. That was a total lie. The federal government had no role in that whatsoever. So why did President Bush say that? What happens a year later? A year later, they're controlling every police department, every fire department. They have to file a plan that is approved by the federal government. And so they do these things not because they're trying to help. They do these things because they love power. President Bush seized control in a real sense during an emergency. He federalized all police, all fire trucks, all ambulances. He federalized them with that statement. And so when President Biden says, I will make all the depositors whole, understand what he's doing. He's saying we're going to grab power and control over every bank in this country because that's why he does it, because it's about power. And that's what that's the nature of man. Right. I mean, that's not going, oh, you know, it's Republican, Democrat. doesn't really matter. And, and the thing, too, is um, wanting power and wanting to help people are not necessarily in contradiction. You could say, I see where people made mistakes. I should be in control and I will never make mistakes. Because you know, it's not that everyone you know that every per, 
politician who expands government power is an evil dictator, you know, saying, what can I get my hands on next? How can I cause evil in the world? You know, if we're being charitable, a lot of them want to do good and are confident that they are smarter than all these businessmen and that they can fix the problems that they caused. Right, exactly. And we all accept that with the idea of a parent and their children, right? That you tell your children, don't do that, and you set hard rules, and you don't really debate it with them. You say, these are the rules, because you go, I'm smarter than they are. And that's appropriate and good for a parent to do that. But when the government does that, that's pretty much the definition of socialism. But if a parent did that with a child from the time they were one until they were 18, the child would never become an adult either. And if they did it where each time the child made a mistake, they increase the regulation, right. which is exactly what the government does, then what you do is you create an immature class, which is basically where we are as a nation. If you look, the average age where somebody starts to really become productive is like 26 instead of 21. I mean, there's been a huge shift over the last 30 years, and a lot of it goes back to the government saying, we're going to take care of you. Oh, you don't have a job for health insurance. Well, we'll require the This was our failure. This was our failure. We're going to require the insurance companies to cover you until you're 26. They create all these things that basically create an immature class, and it's it's it really is why socialism is so inefficient. Because socialism, the idea is the government will figure out everything. While capitalism, when it's implemented like it should be, capitalism, the guys who were in there and they had their $100 million in there, guess what? They lose their $100 million, except for the 250000 that they were insured for. And then nobody trusts them anymore. And everybody goes, I don't want to be that guy anymore that's the venture capitalist that used to be wealthy and he has a venture capital fund that's now worth zero. And everybody else goes, I'm going to be more efficient with my money. I'm going to be more careful with my money. I'm going to deal with things. But when the government says, we're going to bail you out, it creates these ripples of inefficiency through the economy because socialism doesn't work. It's where socialism is the idea. You'll have the most brilliant people in charge, and they'll come up with a solution that works well for everyone. It just doesn't work that way. The world's much too complicated for that. And, and and when you have the government trying to give out charity, it, it just doesn't have the discernment that people do. Because you, you know, if they're bailing out venture capitalists, well, a lot of venture capitalists invest a ton of money in things that are really stupid. Like, really <laughs> stupid. Like you know, a, They expect a nine out of com- ten investments to fail. Right. Yeah, and they, they're expecting that a lot of them fail. And some of them you look at and they're like, yeah, this obviously won't work. You know, you know, a person with common sense would look at it. Now, you know, maybe they're hoping that it turns into something later. And, I mean, they make money doing it. So it's not that they're bad at their job. But they are expecting there to be a lot of failure. And so the idea that that they lost a lot of money on something, well, that's normal for them. Now, this is a normal situation. But they're not people that like, you know, because there's a, there's a, a story. When it's, it's, I think it's apocryphal. But, you know, when uh, Davy Crockett was in the House of Representatives that they were trying to pass a bill to, you know, give money to, you know, some person that you know, or some city had a natural disaster. And so he's like, we, this is not the government's role to be doing. You know, let's pass around a hat and we'll collect money and give it to them. But it's not the government job to do it. Now, story probably didn't happen, but it's still a good story nonetheless. But would we all chip in and give money to pay off venture capitalists to get their, you know, millions of dollars back? Probably not. But you are because the government will put a gun to your head if you don't because it's doing it by force. So you will 
you just would not choose to do that. Or or your the government is putting a gun to your banker's head. Right. In and, this case, and yes. what's happening is your banker's turning around and saying, Well, guess what, everybody? And everybody's gonna suffer, so you won't have choice number two. You won't have someplace else to go. Where if it was the other choices where the market is doing it, then you have other choices and you can do something. When the government does it, you can't say, well, they raise my rate or that, you know, the fees or they reduce the interest rate they're paying on deposits, so I'll go to Bank B because Bank B has to pay it too. When the government does it, it implies or it forces the banks to all have the same inefficiencies. So your economy decays and your economy gets worse and worse. Or capitalism, you punish people, you spank the people that make errors, and then other people fear, and they don't do the same thing, and your economy gets better. So there's a reason why socialist economies, sometimes they start out okay. And like Stalin, he kept having to do five-year plans where he would inject capitalism in so that all the people in Russia wouldn't starve, because that was the only way to get efficiencies back. But now we look and we think we can just keep putting more and more inefficiencies in, and it's actually going to work. And no, it's not. I mean, we're impoverishing ourselves with all these inefficiencies that we're putting into the government or putting in via the government. And it's not like capitalism is a perfect system where people, you know, where it's always equitable and people only, you know, receive negative consequences when they do something stupid. I mean, it's not that simple. But what's the alternative? The alternative is you don't get punished even if you do do something stupid. In capitalism, the market is punishing people who are inefficient. In socialism, in so, you're punishing the people who don't get votes. And so the point of the policy is to get votes, not to help the economy. For capitalism, there's you help yourself, which helps the total economy, right? Because you're trying to increase efficiency so that you produce more, which helps the total economy. In socialism, they're saying, what can we do to get the most people to like us? And so the target is not efficiency in the economy. It's not efficiency of production. It's efficiency of vote collecting. And so your policies are about votes. President Biden didn't go up there and say we're going to make all these investors whole because he thought that would help the economy in, in general. He may think – I mean I'm sure he thinks to some extent that that will stop bank runs. But he's also going – venture capitalists give a huge amount of money to the Democratic Party. They are a big source of funds, so you don't want the venture capitalists to lose money because that will cause you to lose votes. Because it does have to do with socialism. Your goal is not an efficient economy. Your goal is to collect votes. And because he can sell it as bailing out the depositors and punishing the bankers, it doesn't look like he's doing something just for the rich. I mean, he can sell it out, even though in reality, in a large way, that is who he is. I mean, he is showing favoritism to the rich. At the expense of the poor. Which is what they're really doing, which is why they go, we're not bailing out the companies just for the company's sake. We're bailing out the companies so that they can meet payroll. Right. So that he can go, we're generous to the poor by actually being generous to the rich so that we collect votes. Right. And and does the, doesn't the whole thing put the, you know, make it more risky for everyone? Because if they're using the, all this insurance funds money to bail out the bank that shouldn't even – about the bank that shouldn't even qualify, 
doesn't that mean that they no longer have that money for if there is a bank that does qualify for the program? I mean, it seems like you know if if the same thing happened next year, they're not going to have the money, and the, they're going to say, "Well, we're going to have to print the money because we don't have it." Because the taxpayers will pay it. Because now they have said in 2008, they said there are certain financial institutions that are strategic and are too big to allow to fail. With President Biden saying all the depositors will be made whole, he's saying the bankers will be punished. But no depositor will ever be punished. So there is now no bank that's too big or too small to basically fail. There's no bank that you can go and put your money in that the federal government will not give it all back to you, which means that, you know, you're sitting as a banker and that's going to change your banking policies. That's going to change the decisions. Buy bonds or put it in the stock market. Maybe it will go up and you get rich and that everybody goes, look at how much money you made. I mean, all of a sudden, you've increased, you've made it so that the banks have no reason to do risk assessments because the government's now guaranteed that they won't have any risk. So what they can do is go, well, I'll put this money in, and if it works, I'll be really famous as one of the best bankers. And if not, the bank goes out of business. So what? And, and Nobody then, will be mad because the depositors will be made whole by the federal government. And then will they try to compensate for it by putting in a lot of regulation to make sure they don't right. do that? Then they'll make right. rules that, that so that if there was somebody who could make good investments, they won't be allowed to make good investments because they're just going to make this general rule that outlaws some category of behavior not tied to understanding, not tied to risk. A lot of this is pride. It's, I mean, this is really this, the economic influence and effects of this has to do with pride. Because the Congress, who doesn't have many bankers in it, is going to decide that it understands banking better than people who have spent their life in banking. And a lot of the banking families, it's not their life. It's five generations, right? But they're going to be positive that they understand better. So they won't just write a bill saying, don't put it in bonds. They'll go, you need this percentage here and this percentage, because they are so proud that they will dictate at that level. That if they're like the Congresses that went before, that's what we should expect to happen this time. And they'll go, because the, the people didn't bear the risk, but they bore the risk because they made it whole. And we know now that that, that that fee of that insurance plan, they don't have any money in reserve anymore. So we know next time the government's going to have to bail it out. So we'll tell them exactly how to do it. And this is how you get people like passing laws that are so ridiculous that anybody that like is in a field looks at them and goes, this is ridiculous. But it's because the congressmen have decided that they know more about everything than the people do. And the reality is there's a huge amount of information in the world that requires a lot of people to know. And when you put it down into the hand of even 535 people, guess what? They don't know everything. They don't even come close to. And the We're the only who, four people who know enough to speak to any <laughs> all of me. <laughs> and that's kind of the heart of socialism is that the people that have power think that that power has you know, given them knowledge about every field. And that's why every country that it's tried in, it creates great poverty in the end. And that's the direction that we're going in. And, and these things are big steps in that way that may not look like big steps at the time. But over time, you'll see they're big steps. I mean, I mean, you already have, I mean, t- two of the, you know, fee- you know, sectors of the economy that people complain the most about are health care and then, at least at certain times, banking, which are probably the two, some of the two most regulated areas of the economy. And that's already what people are complaining about. And I would throw in a third, which is education, which is largely funded by the government. So it's 
putting your, you know, people are wondering why education prices are going up two, three times inflation. Well, the government's involved. Why is medicine going up two or three times inflation? Government's involved. Why do banks fail and cause these bank runs? They have always happened, but they used to be managed and they used to be short and painful. Now they're long and not as intense a pain. But, you know, President Obama's presidency was basically recovering from the Great Recession. Previous ones were three months. And we have successfully, by government programs, turned three months of pain into eight years of pain. That's a lot worse than the three months of pain. There are certain points where we're talking about the government shouldn't have all this authority and all these different things. The reason for this is because God, God is the one who actually has authority. I mean, God is the one who has authority over the earth, and he made the world to work in certain ways. He vested certain people with authority. He vested parents with certain authority. He vested government with certain authority and church with certain authority. And he's the one who gets to pick. He's the one who gets to decide. And the issues that are going on is when the government says, this failed, I can fix it. And the way I fix it is, is I'll end up using the power I have in a way that God did not design for me to use it, but I'll take my power and I'll swoop in here and I'll fix it. This goes against the thing. This is not how God decided to glorify himself in the world. I mean, God's glorified by everything, but he has prescribed certain ways that he desires to be glorified. And so when you see these things, it's going against the way that God has desired to be glorified. You can see this in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18, where Israel no longer wants God to be their king, but they want a man to be their king. And God warns them. He tells them, this is what's going to happen. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifty, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants." He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. And I mean... We're crying. I mean, you can see part of what we're doing tonight is we're, we're going, There's this is wrong, some of the things that are happening in the world. But the reason it's happening is because man doesn't want God to rule over him. He wants a man to rule over him. He wants to look to man. He wants that man to solve his problems. And that man will go, I'm going to solve your problems. And because I'm over you, I'm going to make you my servant. And it's this belief that man can man- can mitigate risk, that he can that the strength of the United States, it doesn't matter what happens, we can overcome the risk, which is why we keep printing money during COVID. It's why we're doing this now. It's why it's this idea that that together collectively as the government of the United States, that we can overcome any risk. And that's not true. God judges nations and he causes them to fail and he causes them to fall for the things that we have now accepted as normal. Is it, I mean, for Christians, is the lesson just that basic, simple that do not be deceived god is not mocked whatever a man sows that he will also reap and what we're pushing against is the government keep 
stepping in and saying, no, no, actions don't have consequences. I think that's that's very true. And I think that when you look at the church, there is also the idea that the church doesn't want to do what it's supposed to do. Again, the church is teaching the society. And there's things that the church is supposed to do. Who's supposed to care for the poor? The church, right? Not the government, the right. church. But we look at welfare and go, this is wonderful. Who's supposed to do education? The, the church. <laughs> the church. <laughs> you <is> answered <laughs> it last time. You <laughs> the family. We got this one. <laughs> well, there is edu- there's, there's one level of education in the family. There's another level of education in the church that's supposed to be done because the church is supposed to be the backstop for the family. But what we've done is we've we've – Put it to the government. And then we're not satisfied with it being parents in the local school board, so we move that up to the state. And then we're not satisfied with that, so Carter comes along and moves it up to the federal government. We keep doing the same thing over and over again. And a lot of it is because the church is going, we don't want to raise our children, so of course, why wouldn't the government take it on? And so the church needs to start saying, what are our actual responsibilities? And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of parents that are Christian parents— that, you know, that go to church. They then turn their children over to be taught and trained and discipled by, by the school, and then they're surprised that they turn out terrible. And it's this, this whole nature of man to not want to do the work that he's been assigned to do. And I think this is just manifesting it in a way that, that it's judgment on our culture that's going to get worse and worse until the church repents. And how many pastors are there out there who they know someone in the congregation is struggling financially, and they're like, let's make sure that you're signed up for any welfare program you're eligible for. I'm sure that must have happened many, many times. And, you know, on on the one hand, it's a, it's a problem through our whole society, but it's right there in a, in, a, in a very small example. Someone has a problem, and they're saying, let's, get the gov- let's advocate and have the government do it instead of us handling it. And it's really important to understand that when the church does it, who receives the glory? They will see your good for they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Right? That's what Jesus Christ said in Matthew five. When the government does it, who gets the glory? The government. When the church pushes people to the government, they need to recognize they are not about glorifying God. They are about treating the government as God. And so if you're treating the government as God, and if God is a jealous God, what should you expect to have happen in the society around you and in your church? God hates idolatry. It's not a good place to be to be get where God is hating, <laughs> right? That's just just right. basically a bad position to be in. We went from bank bailout in California to idolatry. And it's all true. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I mean, I want to go back to something you said earlier because you talked about being able to mitigate that we think we can, we can by our strength overcome the risk all the risk collectively, the we can do it. Yes, and risk exists in the world because of sin. Risk, you know, I mean, without but, sin, there would be no risk. There is, I mean, risk is that there will be harm, that there will be injury. Harm and injury exist in the world because of sin. So, when you say you can mitigate all risk, what you are saying is the arm of man can overcome the works of the devil, the power of man that we can collectively bond together and overcome sin. It is a salvific effort. It is fundamentally saying we can make our own gospel. And so we just and you just we just need to understand that. That is what man is saying. It is idolatry when we say we can overcome the risk in the world collectively. It is it is it is the vision that Daniel had 
of the 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 idol right. that was shaped like a man that the that God sent his kingdom the, into the world to crush and ground into powder that is what the gospel came to destroy is the idolatry of man and the idea that man should be worshiped and that man can save himself. And so you were referring to Daniel 2. We should also think about it in terms of Daniel 4 because that's where we are as a nation. Where Nebuchadnezzar goes, I did this all myself. Right. I have this power because of who I am. Instead of saying, no, it's the mercy of God. And that's what we're basically saying is when we say that the government can solve the problem, we collectively as the American nation are acting like Nebuchadnezzar. And that's and the a churches. That's a really shocking passage when you think about all of the terrible, you know, objectively terrible things Nebuchadnezzar has done mm-hmm. up to that point. Yet God keeps him in power. He is still God. God uses. He's still him the as, king of kings. Yes, God is using him as his servant to to crush a whole bunch of other pagan countries around him. He's still there. But the moment that he walks out and says, "Look at this great city that I did by my own strength," that was too much. That was the point at which God said, nope, you're done. The way God ordered the world's really interesting in a lot of ways. But even in this way, where you look at this and you go, well, the, you know, the CFOs were supposed to detect this and see this. You know, they put all these labels on things and stuff. How many people actually read those labels? The answer is almost nobody does. But there's a small percentage of people that like – in, it's different in every area, but there's a small group of people that in like everything that's published, the reason they publish them is not because everybody's going to read them. The reason that they publish well, them is because the government makes them. Right but the, reason, <laughs> right. but the reason that the government mandates it, and I'm not saying it's good that they mandate it because it would work a different way is there's a small group of people that like actually check things. Right. It's like it's like when you put footnotes in a book. Most people, they don't check the footnotes, but there's like your point. Zero zero one percent that checks the footnotes, and when they're there, everybody trusts in them. Not because they trust the author, but they figure somebody will look. And God has ordered that there's people that will be interested enough that they'll check all the footnotes. They'll obsessively check the footnotes. They'll read about the the thing and they'll check the things to see if this really has the nutritional value that it says it has, and all these other things. And this is true, like throughout the world, that God gives people very diverse interests so that they have like a real focus to do things that other people look at it and go, why in the world would you do that? But God ordered it that way, and the government bypasses all those things by saying, we're just going to tell you what to do. And so, yeah, a lot of CFOs would never do it. But if one out of a thousand did it, it would be enough to solve the problem and be far more efficient than the government doing it. Somewhere out there, there's a CFO whose CEO is giving him a raise right now because he said, don't invest in that bank. Don't put your money in that bank. I know you were tempted to do that. Aren't you glad we didn't do that? And I'm sure with Signature Bank that went with cryptocurrency because they made an announcement like in August or something. I forget what they did that we're going to greatly reduce our cryptocurrency basis. And I'm almost positive that the reason that they did that is because some CFOs went – we're pulling all our money out of here. And they went, there's going to be a run unless we tell them. And like you said, those CEOs are going to those CFOs and going, wow, thank you, except for Joe Biden stepping in, and it wouldn't have hurt him anyway. And so all of a sudden, that CFO that was actually improving efficiency of the company, now, why bother? There's no reason to increase efficiency. Right. It's very damaging. And that's what 
that's what sin looks like. That's what idolatry looks like is it has these minor effects that don't look that bad, but boy, do they accumulate. Because we look and we look, you know, it's something like in the last 120 years, our inflation's rate been 33 times, not 33%, 33 times. A dollar like 120 years ago is now worth, it costs you $33 for the equivalent purchasing power. And that's all the government intervention that was free. Just like when President Biden goes, this is free to the American taxpayer. It's very expensive, but it's hidden because people don't see it. Uh, it comes back to that we don't have faith that the things that God says are true. I mean, in the end, God says false weights and false measures will do these things. He says that whenever you allow injustice, it will do these things. I mean, there's even a part where Scripture talks about, because like you're talking well, about these. The, like with the king, that he'll accrue power. Right. They say he's going to get more and more servants, and we look, and there'll be a new agency probably. I might give it to the FDIC or something else. But they'll. last time they created a new insurance program, and that's probably they'll do the same thing. They'll hire a bunch of people. They'll, they'll increase the number of maid servants and manservants. They'll do... Exactly and what God said. And you will be his servant. That's and the, you will be his servant. That's the part people frequently just skip. They forget. Not only will he take all these other servants, he's going to take all them, and you will be his servants. Because this is the end of it, is you must lose your freedom if you're going to let someone else be responsible. And we're free in Christ, but free in Christ doesn't mean that we are without responsibility. It doesn't mean that, that all of a sudden we just go, oh, we're free in Christ. We can just ignore everything. Quite the opposite. We're to take every thought captive. We're supposed to be just in all things. Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly before your God. And all these things are about the opposite of that. Is it just for the person that had that they were told that they had $250,000 worth of insurance and they put the $100 million in there? Is it just for them to lose $100 million? Yes. Is it unjust for the other banks to be forced to pay the $100 million? Absolutely. Right. But yet the church will sit back and applaud and go, well, at least those poor people didn't lose their money. I mean, we the forget. The church has to love justice. I mean, and the scripture talks about, I mean, there's a part of it where one of the things we have forgotten is those CFOs who were wise, those CFOs who were careful, right now they should be able to buy those banks for pennies on the dollar. They should be able to buy the, the investments. I mean, this is one of the. I mean, when, this is one of the ways that God has ordered the world is so that when those people who are not prudent, when they run forward recklessly, when they run forward foolishly, when they believe in their sin, when they destroy themselves through it, those who were prudent can buy their can can buy the, the things that they that they wasted themselves on for pennies on the dollar, and that is supposed to be the reward for those who were prudent. And you steal that reward. And like you said, there are going to be people who goes, there's no point in going and checking anymore. You've removed, all, you've removed all the incentive to be careful because you've said it's the same for everyone. And, and to be fair, you've put incentive on not to be careful. Because if you knock out risk, then all you see is reward. So you should seek the best reward possible. Right. And so it's, not, it's like with the bicycle helmets, right? It's yep. not just that they ride the bicycle the same way. They do things on the bicycle that they wouldn't have done without the helmet. Because your head is invincible Because now. your head is now invincible because you've fallen a few times. And what it would have been, you get a bruise and you go, well, that's stupid. I'm never going to go over that jump again. You fall and you go, that didn't hurt. So I'll make the jump twice as big. And that's what actually happens. That's what mankind is like. You cannot think you can eliminate the risk without people trying to go bigger and bigger and bigger. Because the risk is how God ordered the world so that there'd be constraint. 
But we want to say people shouldn't be constrained. Nobody should ever be hurt. Nobody should ever lose anything. Everything should just be smooth and easy because God is kind. Instead of going, no, God built the world so that there'd be consequences for sin. There'd be consequences for error. Because you're greedy and you'll feel it. Not in, a, not in modern America. You can be greedy, and that just means that somebody will use somebody else's money to bail you out. Right. The foolish pass on or punish, right? I mean, I mean, this is— Well, there's complexity to it because what we're saying is that, that God has ordered the world in a certain way, and, and we're fundamentally rebelling against that. We're denying that God has ordered the world in that way. But— but God has ordered the world that way. We're going to pay. We are actually in that situation yeah. where we're acting like you can mitigate risk and that it can actually disappear so you can take greater greater leaps forward. And what we're actually doing is taking these leaps forward that are destroying the country and heading us to destruction because God did order that way. But we lie to ourselves and think we're actually mitigating risk when we're actually just leading ourselves to greater destruction. We believe that there's not a connection between sowing and reaping. Right. We believe that it's possible to mock God, and we are deceived. You know, everything in that verse, we've turned on its head. And so many of the church that are professed Christians will applaud it. And we should just recognize people need to actually understand what's going on and understand how God thinks about this matter instead of being so self-centered to go. But man, but at least those people didn't lose their money. Well, that's so short-sighted. I mean, and it's the same reason so many people in the church don't spank. It's like, well, this, this will hurt them. No, actually, it helps them by hurting them short-term which is the same exact thing here. The best thing for the banking system would be to let those banks fail, let the people lose their money, and then long-term the banking system would be healthier. But instead what they do is we're not going to allow them to be spanked because that would hurt them because they'd cry and they wouldn't give us money to buy votes, to be cynical about it. And so instead what they do is they go, it can't be any pain. But this is how Christians typically raise their children without any pain, when the reality is what you want to do is give them pain now with the great desire that they won't have pain in the future, much worse pain. Right. We're the ones that are supposed to, it's like the bicycle helmet. What you do is you make it so that it hurts when they, when they jump without a helmet so that they don't build it higher and jump in some way that they could kill themselves. I mean, that's parenting in terms of the spanking, right? That you spank the child when it's a small thing. When they touch something that's hot, you tell them no, and they don't listen to it. And so they touch something hot so that when they're running out in the street and you say no, they stop before they get driven over by a car. But the government's saying, no, we can't let them have the pain of touching the hot burner. Right. So instead of individuals no. instead of individuals going out and overextending themselves and falling and learning, we've instead we've leagued ourselves together into one like Jonathan said, you can't violate the fact that God has made these laws. So instead we're one giant man collectively overextending ourselves and we will fall. We are going to because fall. we are the idol. Right. And to so, think that the United States is that great, we're an idol that will fall. God destroys idols. And so the church, the responsibility of the church is to speak against this so that you are not in league with them because you can't approve of their evil actions. It reminds me of the verse that in Proverbs where they say, let us all have one purse. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. We should recognize that just how much the failure of the church to take responsibility for the things that it's responsible for, that it has been given responsibility by God for, and for Christians to, to forsake the responsibility that they've been given for their families and for their households. 
and we turn it over to other people, just how much this permeates through and causes such great destruction in our country. We have, we have sown much damage, and the church needs to start to recognize that we shouldn't just go, oh, yeah, this is good because it works, because God, God will not be mocked, and it may appear to work, but it doesn't work long term because God is holy and just and good. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.